Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. This is a Lip Media Podcast. Buckle up, Sodomites, and welcome to the Sinister Sissies podcast, your guide to true crime, horror, and everything man-on-man and macabre. I'm Jared, your master of depravity, and I'm here with a fellow lip media podcaster, Simon Copland from the Queers podcast. Welcome, Simon. Hi, Jared. Thanks for having me. I'm actually, I'm kind of excited, even though I'm feeling a bit bit rushed the last few days in my my research. I'm, I'm excited now. Well, look, you can you can turn off your brain a little bit, yeah, a little bit just for this podcast. Yeah, no, no, that's 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 I, I love this kind of stuff. So today we are talking about quite a unique contradiction of a man, uh, a man named Nicky Crane. He is a gay man who was also a very active skinhead neo-Nazi. Now, I at the start of this podcast, I just want to talk about the fact that like. Normally, we're fairly, like, lighthearted and, like, fun in these podcasts. Like, I'm usually quite chill and it's quite funny about it. I feel like it might be a bit tricky <laughs> to, do the, the, to, to do the lighthearted shtick when there's neo-Nazis. I don't know. I've made it work for bloody cannibalism and Jeffrey Dahmer, so... <laughs> we, look, look, there's, some, there's the- some pretty awful stuff in this in this story, but I think that there's some interesting stuff too, and, and potentially some light-headed, light-headed some light-hearted um, stuff as well. Yes, hopefully, hopefully. But if I'm overly serious in this podcast, it's just because, you know, Nazis, they, so they bring the though. mood down. <laughs> They're such buskills. Yeah, they really are. Each and every man under my command owes me one hundred 
Natty, scalps. And I want my scalps. All right, so let, let's talk about the early life of Nicky Crane. He was actually born uh, Nicola Vincenzo Crane on the 21st of May, 1958. And Nicola Vincenzo, uh, that indicates his background his mother was italian yeah uh and his father was uh from a working class background he he was born in bexley in southeast of london but uh grew up in crated and crayford in kent i'm not very good with my uh, london suburbs no idea where these places are um they're, they're in london somewhere and from all the descriptions that I've read, quite a quite a blue collar working class type area. Well, I think this is this is a trend that you probably see uh, both in uh, the skinhead movement in whether whether this and, and I think maybe we should we we just talking about this before we should just, just distinguish between skinheads and sort of neo Nazis and neo Nazi skinheads, even though there's clearly overlap there. Uh, but I think that for both of those, uh, in, in, for, in particularly in the United Kingdom, there is a lot strong sort of working class background that exists. Uh, sort of eastern Lo- London, southern London, uh, there's lots of stuff in the Midlands, in, in Birmingham, Manchester, these kinds of places is where a lot of these movements are really strong. Uh, and so it's really uh, connected to a lot of these. Same with, same with metal. Yeah, yeah. and, and Heavy metal, well. origins of heavy metal, similar type areas, yeah. those kind of working class backgrounds. And you see obviously a lot of skinhead stuff that's not associated with neo-Nazis uh, in kind of punk movements in the 1980s. And again, very working class background, the suburbs, the industrial areas of, of the United Kingdom, the suburbs of London, these sort of big industrial cities like Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, this is where this kind of stuff comes from. Yeah, and so he first got involved in kind of what I will just call skinhead culture, not neo-Nazi culture, but skinhead culture when he was a teenager. He would go see bands like um, Sham 69 and Bad Manners and a lot of these other uh, ska and oi and punk-influenced bands that were associated with the skinhead movement. Um, And skinhead, you know, it it is a music genre. It is also a a pure... A, a, an aesthetic, like it's a complete aesthetic. And I think it's important to note as well that that it's also a key component of kind of gay men culture yeah. as well. Yeah. Skinheads have always been involved in uh, uh, something that's been attractive uh, to gay men, uh, mainly because of the kind of fetish style aesthetic, which I totally get. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get it too. I'm not, I'm not sure it's quite for me, but I, I do totally get it. Like the, the bald head, the sort of... Uh, washed out jeans, um, the uh, uh, what are the suspenders, the big boots, that kind of look is exactly what you're thinking about with skinheads. Um, and and it's interesting, I was reading about this and I, I hadn't realised this, but uh, there's a, a really excellent article about Nicky Crane in the BBC when they have some stuff about skinheads there. And I hadn't realised that it was sort of in, originally this, this movement was influenced by West Indian immigrants. Um, looking, you know, and there was a lot of connection to soul and reggae that started started off and then transformed and moved into sort of more white culture, um, which is particularly interesting given the association it has with neo-Nazi movements and the sort of anti and the uh, and the sort of racist movements that are connected to it in in particular kinds of ways, and that it sort of started from this place and in the in the UK in particular took off in a, in a more working class white space. I I, th- I think I think one of the attractions that 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 everyone um that is involved in in skinhead culture is attracted to is it similar to punk it has a certain aggressiveness to it and a a certain gruffness to it 
which you know you could you can have uh, be appealed to just aesthetically but also sexually or all the all these other things and i think people find that quite quite influential and i think about and the pati- the fetishism of that sorry I'm, i cut you off there <laughs> no go, go i think about the go. fetishism of that in terms of gay men and gay male culture and i, and I watched some uh, some videos of this from people being in skin gays male skin, skinheads being interviewed in the sort of 1980s and 1990s and the real thing, the real picture that I get in my head is the picture of someone licking someone's boots and that someone sitting under someone's oh, boots. Yeah. And that is the exact gruffness, roughness, uh, sort of domination type idea, but it's all about the boots. It's not about the whips or chains like you might get in sort of a more uh, sort of other forms of leather culture, all those kinds of things. It's about the boots and that being, and you know, and you, these men talk about kicking other men in a sexual way. And that's, there's no punching, there's nothing like that. It's about kicking men with the boots. Uh, and I think that that's a really it's, interesting part of that that rough aesthetic. Interestingly, though, I don't think that's what attracted Nikki Crane to the culture. Well, what do you think attracted Nikki Crane then? What's what? what? Uh, I think I think it was more his working class background. Yeah, um, well, that's probably that, that true. His attraction. His attraction to skinhead culture was, well, one, the music. He was always very into the music from a very young age. And he was very uh, interested in um, that kind of working class gruffness. Because like, from a young man, he, he he was a very violent guy. He used to get into fights all the time. Yeah. He was, you know, we're going to talk about in the future about how, like, members of the, the far right kind of suspected that he was probably gay. But but no one fucked with Nikki. No, because he was so he was he, <laughs> he was, was big, very intimidating, he was big, imposing, large guy. And I, and I think you're right about that because he does. There is a part I can't remember where I saw this where he said that he didn't have sex with a man until he was 24. But he was well involved in the 26. 26. I thought it was 24. I thought he came out like anyway. Either way, around that sort of mid 20s. Um, and uh, that's. But he was involved in the skinhead movement well before that. So that suggests that the sort of sexual aesthetic of it was not was not the the driving force. You know, there's a there's a there's a question in one of these videos that I watched where it says, you know, were you a skinhead first or were you gay first? And I think he was a skinhead first. Uh, that was the, you know, that was in many ways the first, you know, the first part of his sort of identity, if you want to use that language. I'm not a big fan of that language, but that was kind of, he was a skinhead first. And there was, at this particular time, a considerable amount of overlap of some aspects of skinhead culture and emerging far-right movements. In particular, a particular type of organisation known as the British Movement, was coming to the fore in um, the early 1970s. Now, the British Movement was a far-right movement. Um, It's interesting to think about this sort of far-right politics, particularly viewing it today, because the British Movement was, was something that was formed because the traditional political parties of the time, the nationalist leading political parties at the time, were actively saying that, no, we want nothing to do with racism. Uh, We want to distance ourselves from that. Um, And so a lot of these far-right extremists started to think, well, well, fuck politics. I'm not going to be involved in the political party system. I'm going to create this new movement, um, which was all about kind of, for lack of a better word, grassroots organising for far-right activities and and violence and and acting violently. The, you know, I think the talk of the time was uh, the this idea that they're not going to win in Parliament. They can't win in respectful ways, uh, so they have to win on the streets and they have to take this to the streets. And a key, a key moment of that uh, was the uh, Battle of Lewisham, which happened in 1977 in, on, in August the 13th. 
um, and this was not uh, the British movement. The British movement had hadn't well, had formed, but uh, I think the British movement formed in the late. 60s yeah but it's so around about this time that these two are together but the battle of lewisham was there was a, an organization called the national front as well uh they tried to march from new cross uh to lewisham in southeast london again a very working class area of london and there were a whole range of counter demonstrations uh and there were lots of violent clashes about 5,000 police got involved 56 officers were injured 11 were hospitalized 214 people were arrested it was a major moment in the in the clash in particular the battle on the streets between the far right and and the anti-far right uh and uh for many i mean this um was the it 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 did interesting reading about this stuff and just thinking about how so these kind of clashes were, were quite common in that time and then that kind of went away and then now we've kind of got that sort of stuff coming back more frequently yeah yeah i think so too So, so Crane got involved in the British movement in the the late 1970s. So right when this this thing was coming about, and he very quickly, because he was a big guy, an aggressive guy, and a violent type guy, very much uh, went through the ranks in the British movement. He was known as what's known as a leader guard in the movement, which were essentially kind of like the uh, the bodyguards um, of of this far right movement, where they would when they would do protests or when they would go out um, and commit violence, he was known as the kind of muscle man that you would you would call on. Um, he was involved in in several hate crimes at the time, mostly targeting yeah, mostly targeting immigrant communities. Yeah, so in uh, in 1978, I've got a short list of these attacks that he engaged in in 1978. He took part in assault on a black family at a bus stop in Bishopgate using broken bottles and shouting racist slogans. Um, uh, the judge described him as worse than worse than an animal in the case for that one. The following year, he led a mob of 200 skinheads in an attack of Asians in a nearby Brick Lane, again in London. Uh, in 1980, um, he, had, he was engaged in an attack in Woolwich Odeon. Uh, and then in 1981, he was jailed for part of his for his role in an ambush on black youths at Woolwich Arsenal Station as well. So like continuous these things happening, and he was very well known as being aggressive, being willing to fight, being wanting to fight in the streets, uh, and doing and it multiple times. What was really shocking to me is the kind of scale of some of these um, kind of. Again, I keep using words like direct action and these kind of anarchist terms, but I think they would think about it the same way. Because totally so that agree. Brick Lane one, that Brick Lane one, that 1980 Brick Lane one, it was apparently uh, like 200 skinheads yeah. Yeah. marching in Brick Lane and just attacking people, which is just insane. And they also used to go uh, to uh, concerts. So in 1984, after he got out from prison, uh, there was an open-air concert being held by Ken Livingston, the, the former mayor of London of, London of Mayor. He wasn't the mayor at the time. Um, but there was uh, bands that they brought with the Smiths and Billy Bragg, like very well-known names, and 
they about a hundred fascists turned up to this event and just started to lay into the crowd. This was sort of like a left wing concert, and they just came, turned up a hundred of them and started started laying into the crowd. And then there were left wing people, uh, and in particular, this was during the miners' strikes, uh, like the real tension around miners' strikes in the UK. And there were miners there who just fought back, and there was literal like just uh, you know fights on the in the middle of this concert, um, you know, which happened and that those kinds of things. So they didn't just target. What's What's interesting to me is they didn't just target individuals on the street uh they also went after organized left-wing movements that you know and there's a, a famous one as well uh where he attacked and, and ended up being attacked and made and knocked unconscious um during a a march a uh, an anniversary march for bloody sunday again going and attacking a left-wing uh, march and then in this instance he actually they sort of fought back to the point where he got knocked unconscious and that was towards the end of his engagement with the far right but this willingness just to go in and lay out, lay onto people in the middle of the streets, and I think I think it's important to list that sort of stuff because it wasn't that he was some sort of quiet Nazi sympathizer no, that would like no. write blogs and he stuff. Was he active. very 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 active, and I think this might be a good point to note the fact. So so he um, obviously took part in a number of crimes and was sentenced for various uh, periods of imprisonment associated with that. I think the longest one was a four-year sentence that he served out. Yeah, and that was in um, 1981 to 84 that he served that out. That's right. And that was the one where when the um, when the judge sentenced him, he did the Nazi salute and, and shouted to Kale and, you know, this is how in-depth he was in terms of, in terms of the, the neo-Nazi ideology. But whilst he was in prison... Um, something happened which actually made him this kind of the poster boy yeah. for the neo-Nazi skinhead movement. So whilst he was in prison in 1981, a, a journalist by the name of Gary Bushell um, was uh, putting together an album of um, music that was associated with skinhead culture. So that kind of oi scene, that, that scar oi scene. That I hadn't which... heard of oi until I'd started researching this. It's not really my music yeah. scene. It's my, my music scene. Uh, scene. Um, but it's it's interesting, and it's yeah, I hadn't heard of it until until I started doing this research. I might I might play a uh, play a bit of oi now. So as he was putting together this this compilation, he needed to come up with a cover photo for, for this record that he was making up. Um, and he did a photo shoot and the person that was involved in the photo shoot didn't show up. And so he was really desperately looking for an image of, of the start to put on the front of this record. Um, and he he managed to get a photo of Nicky Crane mm. from somewhere. It was a Christmas it was an card. image of... A Chris, I have no idea why he was on a Christmas card. Yeah, but, I have no idea. Why, okay. no, no, nobody I've found, nowhere I've found has explained why he was on a Christmas card. Like the must have been the Christmas card for the neo Nazis somewhere. Yeah, um, <laughs> for, you know, for the British movement somehow. Uh, as, which is Zig kind of, holidays. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think about the fact that the British movement probably sent out Christmas cards to people to their members. You know, it's a, it's it's very um, wholesome for such a non wholesome organization. I can just I can see them like hanging up like swastika ornaments yeah. on the Christmas tree. <laughs> just 
Um, so obviously he found this image apparently on a Christmas card. That's crazy. Um, of Nikki Crane, um, making this really like skinhead, making this really like tough, tough tone. Um, he originally thought it was a scene from a film that, that, that featured a lot of skinheads, but then realized he was wrong when he noticed that the guy who was depicted there, Nikki Crane had a number of Nazi tattoos. Rather than get a different image, the journalist instead chose to airbrush out the Nazi tattoos. And so on this album, there was this really, it's, it's a quite a, quite a good photo. It's like as in it, photo. It's, it's like, it's a, like, I can understand why this photo became iconic uh, because it is yeah. such a good photo. He's got his sort of boot up. He looks like he's about to kick you. He's got his two fists up. Um, it's, 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 it is... If I think about skinhead culture, I, th- I can think of that photo. And and it's because a bunch of journalists found out who Nikki Crane was and they realised that it was put on this, this oi music um, that they wrote a whole bunch of stories about it because they were being really sensationalists about, oh, this oi and punk scene, look how it's associated with these hateful, horrible far-right groups. So yeah. they, would, they ended up creating this notoriety around Nikki Crane. And 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 Bushel, the guy who who did this photo, he says it was a stupid mistake, and it was it was a, it was a, it was a dumb thing. He said that it was like um, he was kind of facing the prospect of either having to push back the release of the record for the month, or make this, or just use this photo, and he sort of made the wrong decision. Uh, and but he also sort of laughs about this kind of ridiculous um sort of uh, funeral that followed because he was like he had just left the socialist workers party he was considered himself a socialist there were bands on that uh album who all considered themselves socialists like this it was kind of this it was it was i think infuriating for him uh given his own political leanings uh how he was then being labeled as a neo-nazi for this this stupid mistake Although he saw the Nazi tattoos and he airbrushed them out. Yeah, like, he, yeah, no, I agree, but it's a stupid mistake, right? Like, I think <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the pressure. It was, it, it was, you know, he and he admits that it was a mistake. The, the album got pulled a month after it got released because of all of this. Uh, and they, I think they re released it, but. Um, you know, he, you know, he, he says most of, most of the time, he says like many times that it was a dumb thing that he did. And so as a result of this, uh, Nikki Crane's face was on t-shirts, uh, that, that, uh, skinhead neo-Nazis would wear. He was the poster child for this movement. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, I want to switch gears slightly because I, around this time, you know, in and out when he's in and out in, in prison, as we said, at the age of, say, his, his mid-20s, I've got 26, maybe 24, um, he he had sex with a man for the first time. Obviously, probably always knew that he was gay. He's always identified as gay. I don't know if he's had girlfriends prior to that, but um, he had sex for the first time in his mid-20s and started to go out on the, the London gay scene uh, despite being a, a skinhead neo-Nazi. Um, the way he would justify um, when when his 
fellow far-right people would say, oh, someone I said said that you were at this gay bar. Um, Nicky Crane used to work as a bodyguard. He would justify, um, if he was ever cited at a gay venue, he would just say, I was working the venue because it's my job. Yeah, the, uh, the security company would assign him to the, to these bars. Yeah, and so that's the way he, he, he managed to kind of deflect action, at least in the kind of early days when he was doing all of these things. Um, but yeah, other than that, though, lived fairly openly in terms of the gay scene like he was picking up guys he was going to as i said heaven nightclub in london which is this huge very cliched i'm not a huge fan of it huge huge gay club i'm just thinking i don't think i've ever been clubbing in london so i can't uh i can't uh i I have no idea (laughs) i have no idea (laughs) i mean and Um, and this is to the point where he actually attended a pride rally uh in kennington in 1986 he was uh I read somewhere that he was actually a, um, uh, what are they called? He was involved. He, he, he was... had a role. I'm, I'm not across the roles that they have during pride parades and stuff, but, um, he had like a, like an official role, which caused a lot of, a lot of controversy. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to find so, where he is. So it's, he's as a steward at one of the, at the light, at one of the, at a, at a pride march in 1986 of this Kennington pride march. So such a, such a unique contradiction because I don't think you could describe Nikki Crane as being one of those guys that's, that's in the closet, right? It was, it was more that, that very much double life in the, the strongest sense of the word type existence for a long period of time where he would be the soldier for the far right during the day and then a gay boy having sex with men at night. Um, and that that's what I find quite fascinating um, because we'll see even later in life, he he's not quite willing to say that that's a full contradiction in, yeah. in how he goes yeah, about no, things. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, and it's, it's interesting because I think that he is one of very few men I know of who have ever lived in this kind of way. I mean, the most obvious other one is, is Ernst Röhm, who was um, uh, sort of a, a member of the German Nazi party and quite well known as being, he was a co-founder of the, um, of the SA in the early days of the Nazi party. And, and everyone knew he was gay. Hitler knew he was mm. gay and he ended up dying, got, getting killed in the, the night of long knives, but there was nothing to do with his homosexuality. It was because of fears that of, you know, Hitler thought that he was sort of politically, you know, not useful anymore. Um, but he's the only real one. There's another one I've, I've found about it, Wait. a German neo-Nazi. But it's very rare for this this kind of... Well, you you say that. Um, well, that it's, I'm aware of. Well, no, well, it's, it's actually been quite interesting, me me looking into this stuff. Because, so, throughout the 1980s, Crane was still active as being the go-to thug of the of the kind of neo-Nazi groups. And, obviously, he was the poster child, so he was getting a lot of press from that. Um, a lot of anti-fascist magazines were were essentially actively trying to out yeah. Crane. Yeah. Um, and and but one of the reasons that they were trying to actively out Crane is that there was a concern amongst gay groups and the anti-fascist leaning gay groups that this gay neo-Nazi thing was actually catching on. There was a concern. So there was, there was uh, Martin Webster was another very prominent member of the far right at this time who was openly gay. We also had Kevin Wilshaw, who was a prominent member of the National Front, who was also oh, okay, openly there gay. You go. I, I didn't, did it, my research didn't go into as, as much depth. 
Well, it was a bit, it seems like a weird blip in history, but there, there seems to have been a moment in the 1980s and early 1990s where uh, gay groups were undergoing some sort of a crisis to do with their political identity um, and that that far right, you know, obviously they didn't ever had a prominent role in terms of gay groups in, in that, that area, but enough for anti-fascist organizations to go about the process of outing Crane um, and trying on several times to out Crane uh, simply because they were worried about this incursion of, of neo-Nazi ideology in the gay movement, which is fascinating. Yeah, and it's, it's a magazine, an anti-fascist magazine called Searchlight that did this. Uh, and it was apparently very well known within the fascist community because uh, they, they actively reported on gossip within the fascist community. And so fascists read it to read up on the gossip and it was actually considered quite reliable. Um, but when, and they, and they outed him initially, I think it was 1987. Um, and, uh, but at that point in time, it was kind of, from what I read was, it was considered, you know, so people read this stuff, the fascists read it, but it was either, it, they either just didn't believe it or they refused to believe it or they just didn't acknowledge it. Um, and, and I think it was because he was so, you know, he's, as you said, he was a figurehead. He was extremely, you know, powerful. No one would want to challenge him because of how strong he was. And he was very well connected. So he just like challenging him on his homosexuality was just not a thing one did. And I think there might've been an aspect of the, um, you know, he's not one of those gays. Yeah. type rationale because yeah. he was this tough violent aggressive fucking guy he wasn't effeminate or, or anything like that and i think maybe amongst the neo-nazi groups they could justify that yeah I think to some I, extent I reckon that's probably true and it's and it's i mean we'll get to his outing maybe we'll get to his outing a bit later but i think that there's some real interesting stuff about people being more upset about him disavowing his ideas rather than his homosexuality um yeah and and i think that that is that's super interesting about that you know that i think that they were willing to accept him because he was such a good you know street fighter because he was such a good person for the movement and so you know uh, crane acted as this this militant throughout the 1980s and just into the early 1990s he he, he essentially started to move away from far-right political on-the-ground activity um and it's not it's not 100% clear as to why he did it. I, the fact that he was gay was probably a component of that. Um, some of the other commentary that I've read said that um, potentially he was sick of getting the shit beaten out of yeah, him. Yeah, this is what I read as well. There was um, uh, talk of a, uh, a march um, that uh, he went to uh, in 1989, um, so he also started this, uh, helped start this organization called, uh, Blood and Honor, um, which, uh, he did with, uh, a, uh, the lead singer of a band called Screwdriver, who, whose name I've just briefly forgotten. Ian Donaldson. Yeah, so he, he started this organization called Blood and Honor with Ian Donaldson, uh, who they, this was kind of like a, an organization that they started together as a way to um, uh, uh, sort of support far-right music, neo-Nazi music. And they put on gigs, they supported bands, they they spread the music around. Uh, Ian Donaldson was the lead singer of a band called Screwdriver. 
Uh, and uh, that was he, that, that was sort of started off just as a skinhead band, an oi band, and then moved into sort of real neo-Nazi lyrics and, and became a real band of neo-Nazi movements. And Nicky Crane ended up being uh, their bodyguard, uh, and he supported them throughout. The, they sort of they were very very close and very very connected. And these I think these two were the the, the most connected in many kinds of ways. Uh, and you know when when they sort of became a neo-Nazi a proper neo-Nazi band into the 1980s, they had to have their gigs sort of behind closed doors and in secret locations and things like this because anti-fascists would turn up and and sort of and you know really attack their gigs and Nicky Crane played the role of being the um, being the bodyguard for that uh, and there's an interesting case of a time uh, in 1989 uh, where there was a, a button on a gig in London's Hyde Park and anti-fascists turned up uh, and uh, normally so previously Crane would have you know, stood there and fight, fought. But in this instance, he actually fled. He he ran he ran off, uh, which to which you know to, from over all the things I've read was kind of an indication that he was just getting tired of it. Uh, he'd been mm. uh, beaten up previously at the Sunday at the Bloody Sunday March. Um, again, sort of in the late eighties. Um, uh, oh no, sorry, that was in nineteen ninety. So that was after this had happened. But he got beaten up at the Bloody Sunday March, and that was where he was beaten up to the point of uh, being unconscious. Uh, and so you can understand that would get exhausting after a while. <laughs> no matter how much yeah. you believe in your views, that gets exhausting after a while. Yeah, and I think, and so, so that's that kind of strange thing about this. I don't think that that, that uh, Nicky Crane's narrative is one of him realizing his wrongs and changing his ways. I think it is as a, a sense of him just saying, "All right, this is this is this used to be fun. It's not fun anymore." And moving away from it. So in the 1990s, he moved away from far right organizing um, and appeared in a number of um, kind of skinhead skinhead themed amateur porn films, um, which which in itself I think indicates that that again he wasn't concerned about being he wasn't outed. concerned at all about being being outed, was he? No, there was nothing. There was um, nothing. He was not. He was not actively going into these movements, into these into his organizations, and coming out necessarily. But he was no. just living a gay life and quite happily doing so, and mm. and not being scared if someone saw it. Um, and most prominently, uh, he he was known as being uh, gay when he participated in a Channel Four documentary on gay skinhead culture in 1992. Um, in the interview, he, he not only said that he was gay, but he also said that he seems to have moved away from Nazi ideology. So there's a quote from him in the interview where he says, uh, the views I've got now is I believe in individualism and I don't care if anyone's black, Jewish or anything. I either like or dislike a person as an individual, not what their colour is or anything. At the stage when I was in the British movement, but I was being like particularly violent and building up like quite a violent reputation, I did actually know I was gay, but didn't do anything about it. And I think it was at this point that he that was the clean break from the movement, and and the clearest indication of that was Ian Donaldson, who we just spoke about. Um, uh, issued a death threat on uh, uh, against him straight after this on a stage at a, at a gig. Um, he said, Donaldson said, he's dug his own grave as far as I'm concerned. Um, I was fooled the same as everybody else, perhaps more than ev everybody else. I felt I was betrayed by him and I want nothing to do with him whatsoever. And I think 
the from what I've read uh, from from the sort of stories at this point in time, Donaldson was really not hurt about the sexuality. He was hurt about him disavowing the ideas, the ideology, and disavowing the movement. So after he appeared on this this documentary, um, there was a, a good because because he was the poster boy, because he was the poster boy for skinhead neo-Nazi groups. Uh, there was a lot of media sensationalization in the early 1990s. The Sun had a uh, a headline that was uh, "Nazi Nick is a pansy," which is you know the Sun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think you already mentioned that there was outrage amongst neo-Nazi groups, but only partially because he was gay, mostly because he had betrayed the movement. And from what I understand, he then sort of retreated back. Uh, From what I've read, although this is a bit unconfirmed, uh, he he had a partner uh, who was an older man, uh, from some accounts apparently Jewish, um and, which is uh classic classic <laughs> yep um and he came out formally in 1992 uh and then in 1993 he died of aids or aids related illnesses yeah he's um so in 1993 he uh died of broken pneumonia which was a it was a, a complication as a result of of aids um in 1993 and i think it's i find this sort of story um really really fascinating not because i think that there's anything um sympathetic about nikki crane as a person but i love reading narratives of people that are complicate complicated and contradictory and complex and and you know this was not this was not a um this was not like a lifetime movie <laughs> worthy gay story. <laughs> I suspect it won't be a lifetime movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. And in fact, I, I was actually surprised in researching this episode how little has been has been written about Nikki Crane because mm, I actually think that, that his story, um, I don't know, says says some quite interesting things about being gay and what that means and how some some people's political ideologies and political beliefs can be genuinely held, and he genuinely held these really horrible far-right beliefs, um, and also managed to reconcile that with his sexuality yeah. by leading this double life. And the one thing that I don't like about the uh, some of the stuff I've read, has, and particularly the, 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 the part where he comes out towards the end of his life, has been this notion... Uh, that I've read, and this is particularly, this is the only thing, there's a really excellent BBC article that's probably the only real long-form piece I could find on him that sort of went into him in depth. Uh, And they talk a little bit about him being, when he's coming out, that he could be his true self somehow. Um, Yeah. That that really annoys me because it's like, let's just, you know, my partner says, let gay people be arseholes. You know, the the notion that that this neo-Nazi part of him wasn't his true self is kind of ridiculous. It clearly was. And in, and and he lived most of his life with both of those things existing together and seemingly quite at peace with that um, until and and and, it, and even and it wasn't even from all reports it wasn't even his gayness that led him to leave no, the neo Nazi movement. I it don't think he was he was not. And this is the thing that gets overused when we talk about these sinister narratives. It was the same with Jeffrey Dahmer, actually, to some extent. Nikki Crane was not self hating. No, that does. 
And that does not explain his hateful, hurtful actions or beliefs. I think he had hateful and hurtful actions, but then also enjoyed fucking men. Those two things can exist together. And I think, you know, as a kind of final point on this, I think that that is an important lesson from history to learn because just because someone is different in some respect doesn't mean that they cannot uh, find far-right ideology, fascistic ideology appealing. Um, And I I started off calling him a a walking contradiction, and that's because, in my mind, I couldn't reconcile those two principles. But I think that Nikki Crane is a historical example of someone who who was able to tie together those seemingly contradictory notions. Thank you to Simon Copland for joining me. Check out the Queers podcast, part of the Lip Media family. You can follow the Queers podcast, strangely enough, on Twitter at Queers Podcast. And they've also got a Facebook page. Uh, I'd like to make the call out, as always, to get the first person to support the Patreon. As I've said, we're really hoping to improve our recording equipment for uh, this podcast. So if you can support the Sinister Sissies podcast on Patreon, we would really appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at Sinister Sissies. We also now have a Facebook page, so you can like us on there as well. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Jared Bartle. Until next time, stay sinister. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.